All right, so Lamentations 3, there's five poems in Lamentations. That's what the book of Lamentations is. It's a collection of five poems, most likely written by the prophet Jeremiah, although it's not anywhere in the book itself. Um, The history of long, long traditions uh, attribute this to Jeremiah, and uh, largely that comes out of this uh, passage in Jeremiah that talks about him lamenting. And so there's some connection there. But regardless of who wrote it, we know that ultimately God wrote this. Uh, He inspired these words and he put them in the Bible for a reason. He put them in here for us, for for our teaching and edification and rebuke and training and all that that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. So uh, we're, we're just approaching this this um, middle point in the book of Lamentations. So there's two chapters in front. There's going to be two chapters in back. We're right in the middle of Lamentations. And this, this is just an amazing chapter. It's actually the only one that really has a, an overt, uh, very clear, positive message, right? And most of these poems are just really, really brutal. And the reason for that is because He's expressing out of his heart of trauma and sorrow for what happened uh, in Jerusalem as the Babylonians came into that city, destroyed Jerusalem, tore down the temple, killed many people, hauled many others off into slavery. Um, this was a huge thing that happened. And, and the, the poet here is writing out of the anguish of his heart for what's happened to his dear people, as we're going to see. So, um, but chapter three does have a glimmer, more so than the other poems, a glimmer of hope in it. And that's a good thing. We're, we're ready for that, I think. Um, so uh, we're just going to walk through this text. Like, the, you know, there's a, there, I have a little outline here we'll follow, but for the most part, we're just going to read it. We'll stop as we need to, and we'll talk about it. Um, so let's start in verse one, and we're going to read uh, down to verse 20 but we'll stop at verse six for a minute to, to talk. Um, here's what it says. I'm, I'm the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. He has driven me away and forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. He, yes, he repeatedly turns his hand against me all day long. He has worn away my flesh and skin. He has broken my bones He's laid siege against me, encircling me with bitterness and hardship. He's made me dwell in darkness like those who have been dead for ages. Okay, so let's stop there for just a bit. Here's what's going on. This is, this is setting up kind of the, the whole context of the first 20 verses in this poem. Um, and here's, here's what he's basically expressing. Uh, that in this in this absolute sorrow and hardship and loss that he's experienced, he sees God as the enemy. That God is not his friend, that God is not his helper, but God is his enemy. That's what he's expressing. And here's the thing, in the midst of suffering, for all of us, when we experience suffering, when we're in the middle of it, God doesn't always feel close to us in a way we want him to feel close to us. Sometimes he feels like he's actually against us. And that's what's being expressed here. It, this, this idea that God is causing this suffering and he's, 
inflicting this upon them. So, so God is now being described as an enemy. Look at verse one again. It says, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. So he starts this out by using an analogy of a rod, this, this instrument that was actually famously used in Psalm 23, right? The, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. As the Lord is our shepherd, a shepherd's tools were a rod and a staff, right? To, to ward off and fight off predators or thieves or whatever. And, and in Psalm 23, the rod of God's, uh, in God's hand for us is to be a comfort, right? Your rod and staff, they comfort me because God is our shepherd who's leading us through uh, life. But in this case, now we're seeing in Lamentations that this rod that God has is not one of comfort, but one of wrath. It's not comforting. He's now under the, the wrath of God's instrument of, of harm. He's driven me away, it says. He's forced me to walk in darkness instead of light. Listen to that language, right? God forced him to walk in darkness instead of light. He's repeatedly turns his hand against me. So again, this is all language of God is this enemy. Now, we're not going to stay here, right? But this is where it starts. And I think we need to acknowledge that in the hard seasons of life, in the things that we go through, it, God's not always coming across to us as this great comfort. Sometimes it's actually... In, in seasons and moments, it feels like he's against us. And I think we need to acknowledge that because like, as Christians, we just, we just sort of throw these spiritual platitudes out and go, well, you know, God always has a plan. Or, or, or God's got this. He's, he's not going to give you more than you can handle. Right? You hear all these things. And then which, when you're in the moment of suffering, when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't feel that way. And I, I think sometimes we just need to be, as, as believers who are helping others go through suffering, as we become listening ears and shoulders for someone to cry on and a, a warm hug for someone who's gone through something hard, we need to just sometimes just stop with the, yeah, the spiritual platitudes. We need to just be with them. We need to say, I think, honestly, we just need to say, that. You're, yeah, that stinks. Like, you, what you're going through legitimately is awful, and I'm so sorry. I think that's, that's more helpful at, at times. Now, we can't stay that way. Right? We're going to see this text moves. But for right now, Jeremiah is not seeing God as a friend. He's seeing him as an enemy. And then he goes actually into uh, three different examples of how God is his enemy. As we look at verse 7 through 9, we'll see the first one. Here it is. It says, He has walled me in so I cannot get out. He has weighed me down with chains. Even when I cry out and plead for help, he blocks out my prayer. He has walled in my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. So what's the analogy here? Well, essentially, he's saying God is my warden. He's, he's put me in a prison. And I can't even pray because he's blocking out my prayers. I think, again, maybe you've been in this season or in a, in a state where you're like, I, 
I'm praying, but it doesn't even seem like anything's getting through. You're not alone in that, right? That's the beauty of this passage is that it tells us that this is reality at times. It's not always, right? It's not universally always the case, thank, thank the Lord. But sometimes it is. And so he's calling God his warden. Look at the next thing he says. Verse 10, he's a bear waiting in ambush, a lion in hiding. He forced me off my way and tore me to pieces. He left me desolate. He has strung his bow. Sorry, we'll stop there. We'll read just verse 11. All right, we'll get to 12 next. But here's, here's the second analogy. It's not hard to see. He's a bear waiting in ambush, a lion in hiding, forced me off my way and tore me to pieces. He left me desolate. He's saying God's a wild animal that has mauled him. That's how God feels to him. Now, I'm a child of the 90s, okay? And there was a show in the 90s. I don't know how in the world it was ever allowed on television, but it was called When Animals Attack. You remember this? You're all traumatized by this. I just said it and you're like flashback to the horrors of this. I found it on YouTube this last, this week, and it's still like the full episode, the full like 45 minute thing. And it just brought it all back, man. I'm like, oh my gosh, this is the worst. I didn't want to go outside for years because of that show, right? Because it's like, it's all, it's like the sick, twisted sister of America's funniest home videos, which were like homemade videos of haha, someone fell off their bike and hit their head, which I don't know why we laughed at that stuff, but we did because it was the 90s. Um, But this is the opposite. It's all home footage of animals attacking someone, mauling someone, and it's awful, right? Like, I just read a story about a guy who's whose job it was to take people into backcountry in Yellowstone. This was like just a couple weeks ago. And he was fishing in one of the rivers and a grizzly bear thought he was too close to a carcass and just, just destroyed him, just absolutely destroyed him. And this was a guy who knew what he was doing outside. And man, so like this is, this is something that happens, right? Animals come in and they just tear people up. And it's really terrifying and horrifying. Well, Jeremiah is saying, this is what God is like to me right now. That's vivid. That's, that's an imagery that, that it's like, it's really brutal. Verse 12, uh, he says, He strung his bow and set me as the target for his arrow. He pierced my kidney with shafts from his quiver. He, I'm the laughing stock to all my people mocked by their songs all day long. He filled me with bitterness, satiated me with wormwood. So here the, the third analogy is that God is his hunter, that he's the prey and God has the arrow in the bow and he's shooting for the kidneys. He's going for the kill shot. And this is how Jeremiah feels God is treating him. This is poetry, right? It's not literal He's using poetic language, but this is expressing how God, how he's perceiving God is treating him. It's his perception. Let's look at this next one. This one, this one gets me too because of, again, childhood issues. He ground my teeth with gravel, taking a header off the bike into the road. Right? Have you ever done that? <laughs> gravel in the mouth. It's like I've, I've done that. My brothers did that too. We were all idiots, but you know. We all made, you know, ramps that were rickety old plywood and all that stuff, you know. But that, that, that's, that hits. I get that. <laughs> he made me cower in the dust. He says, I've been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. When I thought my future is lost, 
as well as my hope from the Lord. Look at that. My future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. He's at the end of his rope, you guys. This is where he's at. He's going, I have no hope. I have no hope from the Lord. I have nothing. I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm over. It's, it's history. So, so where does he go from here? Like, this is dark, right? This is, I, I've said this for the last two weeks. This is a dark book. It, get, it goes to a really honest but brutal place, and it forces us to reckon with real, genuine suffering. And I don't know that any of us have experienced suffering to this degree, but we've all suffered. We're all sufferers. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble it's the, it's the human experience and, and even more so for believers. And so we have this reality we got to reckon with and go, okay, okay. God is like, he's, the, he's being perceived, thought of, felt like an enemy. So where do we go with that? Look at verse 19. He actually stops talking about God and starts talking to God. And this is what he says. He says, remember my affliction and my homelessness, the wormwood and the poison. I continually remember them and have become depressed. He's looking back and he's going, okay, I'm remembering the affliction, my affliction. I'm remembering my homelessness. I'm remembering the, this trauma I've been through. They're always there. I'm continually remembering them and I've become depressed. That's where he's at. Verse 21 then says, Yet I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. We'll stop, stop there for a second. Now, I said God feels like an enemy. God can feel like an enemy in the midst of our suffering. That does not mean God is an enemy, but he can feel like it. That's, that's a huge distinction. So if you're familiar with the Myers-Briggs stuff, right? And some of you are. I've had some good conversations with you. Some of you, one of you, I won't call you out, but you, you nailed my, my personality like to a T. It was perfect. I love it. You know who you are. Okay. I'm an INTJ. So that T stands for thinker. I'm a thinker. I'm not a feeler. The, there's, a, there's T and there's F. Okay. Uh, so some of you are hard on the feel side. Some of us are hard on the think side. And we need to be both at different points. Right? We, we need, like, guys like me need to learn how to feel things. Because I, I don't very well, right? That's, that's how God wired me to some degree. But, but personhood requires all of it to some degree, right? We're going to lean towards one thing or the other, but we need to recognize that Thinkers need to learn how to figure out how to feel. And guess what? Feelers need to learn how to, how to think. And that's what we're seeing here. We've seen Jeremiah, who is probably a feeler, right? I mean, he's probably off the charts on the feel, feel side of, of the personality thing. He's expressing all of these feelings of despair and hardship and God hates me and all these things. And then he says, yet I call this to mind say, I'm going to bring it up here. I've got to bring it to my mind and have hope. And here's what he does. Look at verse 22. 
here's what he brings to mind. Because of the Lord's faithful love, we do not perish. For his mercies never end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will put my hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for salvation from the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he's still young. Let him sit alone and be silent, for God has disciplined him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is still hope. Let him offer his cheeks to the one who would strike him. Let him be filled with disgrace, for the Lord will not reject us forever. People may fill us with disgrace, but the Lord won't. Right? That's what he's saying. For the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion according to the abundance of his faithful love. For he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. All right, listen, what is he doing? This is amazing. And, and we need to get this, is that he's gone through the most traumatic experience of his life, seen his friends, probably family members, uh, the, the people he loved in this city, just absolutely destroyed, murdered, hauled away, uh, who knows what else, right? Like he has been through the ringer. He is expressing how God feels to him like an enemy, but, but he can't camp there forever. He can't stay there forever because then he's going to just absolutely die in his soul. He has to pivot away from that at some point. There's a, there's a season of grief. There's a need for grief. There's a need for feeling and, and expressing those feelings. There's a need for that. And yet there's also a need to turn away from what it feels like to what it actually is. And they're not always the same thing. And what we see here is that he pivots his mind to the character of God. And so essentially what he's saying is, God feels like he's my warden. God feels like he's a bear waiting to ambush me and murder me. He feels like a hunter that's got me in his scope. He feels that way. But actually, I'm calling to mind that the Lord's faithful love is what keeps us from perishing. Because, he says, his mercies never end. Now, you're familiar, you're probably, if you've heard any verse in Lamentations, it's this one, right? In fact, we, we sing a song, or we, you know, we used to sing it a lot more in church. It's called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Good news, we're singing it tonight, today. So, that's good. You'll, you'll love it. But, we used, to, we used to crank that baby out all the time in, in, in church when I was a kid. And that comes directly from this passage, right? That whole song was inspired by this. And, and here's the thing, though. If we pluck these three verses or so out of this context, we're going to just throw that on a coffee mug and go, oh, great is his faithfulness. This is what, is he actually, what is he actually going through when he says that, though? It's not when seasons are wonderful. Like, right, we, we, we put these kind of verses on T-shirts and coffee mugs and we usually impose them over some, like, beautiful green forest picture and it's all beautiful and wonderful. And, 
It's like, no, how about we impose that over the, the scene of a scorched city with a bunch of dead people laying around? Because that's actually what's happening. That's the text. That's where it's at. It's in the worst season of his life that he can pivot his mind away from what it feels like to what it actually is, which is that God is faithful, that God is merciful, that God is good. That's what verse 25 says. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. Spurgeon, I always quote Spurgeon for you, either that or C.S. Lewis, but Spurgeon says, even though it is out of the depths of the utmost distress that we seek for God, we will find him to be good to us. We will find him to be good to us. Even out of the most distress of our lives, He says it's good in verse 26 to wait patiently or quietly rather for the salvation from the Lord. He says we should sit in verse 28 alone and be silent. We need to sit under the Lord's presence. We need to see that there is still hope in verse 29. Like remember what he said in verse 18, my future is lost as well as my hope from the Lord. Like that's how it feels in the season of suffering, but then he can pivot to the, to the truth of God's character, which is that there is still hope. There's always hope. Because in verse 31, it says, for the Lord will not reject us forever. Even if he causes suffering, he will show compassion because of his abundance of faithful love. See, I know that's hard to believe, in the moments of your, of your worst days. But it's true. And we need to remember that. We, we need to remember that when it feels like God is against us, his faithfulness is great. And it never ends. And it's always new. Every morning his faithfulness and love is new for you. Let's keep going. Because that's actually... Um, we're only at like the halfway point of this passage. I think it's actually interesting, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But let's look at verse 34. It says, Crushing all the prisoners of the land beneath one's feet, denying justice to a man in the presence of the Most High, or subverting a person in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve of these things. Who is there who speaks and it happens unless the Lord has ordained it? Do not both adversary, adversity rather, and good come from the mouth of the Most High? Why should any living person complain, any man, because of the punishment for his sins? Remember, the context of lamentations isn't that this is a bunch of uh, innocent people that are being suffering for nothing. They're, they're suffering because of their unrepentance. Like that's, I, I said this at the beginning of this series, that sin causes suffering, but not all suffering is directly caused by your personal sin. We see examples of Job, where it wasn't his personal sin that forced his suffering. God had another plan in that. We, we actually see it more profoundly in the person of Jesus, who was sinless. And did anyone suffer more than Jesus? No. So sin is not always the, the direct cause of our suffering I mean, sin in a, in a broad sense is always, right? But 
your personal sin is not always why God puts you through things. That being said, we need to be balanced and acknowledge, you know, sometimes it is. That's why he says, why should any person complain or any man because of the punishment for his sins? Like, basically, he's saying, we, we're getting what we deserve here, you guys. We've done this to ourselves, in a sense, right? God is the one bringing it about, but it's their sin that brought it there. And not like God just flew off the handle in a moment and freaked out on them. This had been decades, perhaps centuries, perhaps longer of, of unrepentant sin in his people's lives. And God is slow to anger, but he does get angry. It's not quick. It's not in a moment. It's not just he flips out, but there is a point. There is a breaking point. So what does he go? Where does he go? In verse 40, he says, let us examine and probe our ways and turn back to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and our hands to God in heaven. We have sinned and rebelled. You have not forgiven. You have covered yourself in anger and pursued us. You have killed without compassion. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You have made us disgusting filth among the peoples. Wow, that's, that's intense. Here's what, he, here's what he's saying. He's calling the people, even in this moment, like the destruction has happened, right? You're not, you're not going back in time, right? There's no DeLoreans and flux capacitors or whatever else, right? You, you know, no, that, would, that should have gotten a laugh. Man, alive, you guys. No, just kidding. <laughs> Anyways, uh, that, that's, that's not what's happening. But even in the midst of suffering, we got we to gotta examine ourselves. We got to probe ourselves and go, okay, is there repentance that needs to happen here? If there is, let's, let's pursue it with all our hearts. But, but again, like we could say, all right, this is going to stop here. It's going to stop. But it's not going to stop. He goes on. He says, he again pivots like, Sort of again here in verse 43, which we read, says, God, you've covered yourself in anger. You've pursued us. You've killed without compassion. This is really harsh language towards the Lord, right? You've covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. You've made us disgusting filth among the peoples. All our enemies, here's a quotation, all our enemies open their mouths against us. We have experienced panic and pitfall, devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with streams of tears because of the destruction of my dear people. My eyes overflow unceasingly without end until the Lord looks down from heaven and sees. My eyes bring me grief because of the fate of all the women in my city. For no reason, my enemies hunted me like a bird. They smothered my life in a pit and threw stones on me. Water flooded over my head and I thought, I'm going to die. All right, so what's happening? This is, this is interesting, okay? I think this is really profound. You have the first uh, half of this, roughly half of this passage that's saying, okay, God is my enemy. He hates me. He's hunting me. He's going to destroy me. Then he pivots and calls to mind the faithfulness of God. There's like a section in the middle here where he's bringing his heart and mind back to who God is. And then he goes plunging back down into despair. That, I think, is intentional for us to see. 
because I think we live in a society where quick fixes are what we want. And we just go, man, all right, I, I did what I needed to do. I thought rightly about God, so now everything should be fine, right? That's what we th- expect. But that's not what happens in this text. It's not where Jeremiah goes. This is not like, okay, we're done here. Like, it's, it's, it was bad. I acknowledge it. I admit I'm a sinner. All right, good, we're good. No, no more problems. No, he immediately pivots from, I need to repent of my sins to, I feel like I'm going to drown under the weight of this despair. <laughs> That's not happy, right? I told you it wasn't going to be happy for weeks here, but, but let's keep going. Because it does, the, again, significantly, it doesn't end here. Look at verse 55. This is going to get us to the end. Uh, this, actually, this passage is actually three times as long as all the other poems. It's a triple acrostic. So an alphabet poem that's each stanza is repeated with three verses, each letter. It says, I call to your name, Lord, from the pit, the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not ignore my cry for relief. You came near whenever I called you. You said, do not be afraid. You championed my cause, Lord. You redeemed my life. Lord, you saw the wrong done to me. Judge my case. You saw all the vengefulness, their vengefulness, all their plots against me. Lord, you heard their insults, all their plots against me, the slander and murmuring of my opponents attack me all day long. When they sit and when they rise, look, I'm mocked by their songs. You will pay back what they deserve, Lord. According to the work of their hands, you will give them a heart filled with anguish. May your curse be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them under your heavens. Okay, so what's happening here? Well, you, you got the trajectory. This is the trajectory. He's, he's absolutely in despair because God feels like an enemy. He remembers the faithfulness of God that is pulling him out of that despair. He's then plunged back into despair and says, I feel like I'm drowning here. And then he pulls himself back out of that again at the end of this and calls back on the name of the Lord out of the depths of the pit and God hears him. And and what he begins to do is he begins to affirm that God is not the enemy. This is significant, that God is not the enemy, but is actually the defender. See, do you see the, the total contrast between the first Ha, uh, first like quarter of this ch- uh, passage and the last quarter of this passage, it's like they're completely mirror opposites. They are, uh, God is the enemy in the front end. He's the defender of his people in the back. This is the only passage, by the way, in this book that really gets us to kind of a happier-esque place. But it's all about seeing how God is at work in the middle of our suffering. The placement of this chapter is, is a significant part of interpreting and understanding what's happening here. This passage sits squarely in the middle of this book and it is coincidentally the only one that's truly hopeful. And this is what this tells us. It tells us that this is where the gospel meets us. Not at the end where everything's tied up in a nice little bow, 
And not even necessarily at the beginning when all things are falling apart. But God meets us right in the middle. He's there with us in the middle of our suffering. He hasn't abandoned us. He hasn't left us alone. Jesus Christ is the good shepherd that lays down his life for us. He is our faithful savior. He did suffer and die for our sins. And so because of that, he can meet us in the middle of our suffering. He can come to us right where we need him to be. I think that's huge. And, and you know, it's, it's perhaps hard in the moment of suffering to see where all this is going, right? But as you look back over the course of time, in hindsight, as you've gone through a season, you can absolutely identify the ways that God was present in the midst of this. We need to remember, we need to draw back to our mind the faithfulness of our Savior Jesus. He was the one who ultimately took our shame. He took our condemnation. In other words, he, on the cross, was treated as an enemy of God. God treated Jesus on that cross like he was the enemy. He was placed under the wrath of God. God's God's rod of anger crushed him. He came out on the other side of death alive, which is what gives us hope, which is what which lets us know that he is our savior who cannot just save us from our eternal suffering, but he can meet us in the midst of our earthly suffering because he's our savior and he's he's been through far worse than us. And so he can show us sympathy and grace to help in time of need. So so let me let me pivot here to the New Testament with you for just a few moments. We're going to go to Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there. Um I was sitting with a, on a Zoom call with a pastor friend of mine who's been in ministry about as long as I've been alive and he was walking us through this passage and I was just as, I, as he did it I was like man this is this is so in line with he, with uh, Lamentations 3 it's just an incredible thing it, it looks at it through the lens of the New Testament but it's it tells us some profound things we're going to look at verse um, chapter 10 verse 32 through 36 it's not a lot here But um, in the context of chapter 10, Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is expressing how God's saving work through the blood of Jesus takes away all of our sins, right? So instead of having to keep going back with sacrifices to take care of our sins like the people of the Old Testament, Jesus died once for all. His blood covers all sins for all time for all people who trust in him. That's the context. That's the, that's the overarching thing here. If that's not true of you, then this doesn't apply to you, okay? That's, that's kind of the point. But if that's true of you, this is what we're told to do. This is kind of the application of all this. Verse 32 says, remember. So already we're kind of in the same category as Lamentations 3, like call to mind. What are we to remember? 
Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened. All right, so first thing, if we're going to stick with Jesus through the hardest things of life, we've got to remember, continually draw back to mind the enlightenment that we experienced by grace. We need to remember the saving grace of our Lord Jesus. If we don't keep drawing that to mind, and one of the ways we say it here is we've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We've got to preach the gospel to ourselves. We need to remember what Christ has done for us. That's the first thing, but then it keeps going, okay? Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, look at this, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. After Jesus saved you, he, the writer of Hebrews says, then you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. So in other words, following Jesus doesn't guarantee you a comfy life. You can't read the Bible and actually believe that if you believe the Bible. So, so remember the earlier days when after you'd been enlightened, the enlightenment is what we call the mind, but also remember that as you endured this hard struggle with suffering, sometimes, verse 33, you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. And at other times, you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So what's he saying? Well, if we're going to stick with Jesus through the hard things of life, we've got to remember the saving grace of God in our, in our lives. But secondly, we need to partner in the community of sufferers. What does that mean? It says here that you were companions. Sometimes you were suffering, and sometimes you were companions of those who were treated that way. And, and then he goes on to say how you sympathize with the prisoners. Prisoners being likely believers who were thrown in jail, like the Apostle Paul, for example. And it says you accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions. I don't think any of you feel that way on tax day, but, you know. Do you accept that with joy? Probably not. Obviously, I'm joking. The context here is the confiscation of your possessions because you're a believer in Jesus and someone's coming in to take your stuff because they hate you. But he says you, you, ex, you, you as sympathized with those prisoners and you accepted the plundering of your property with joy because you know that you yourselves have a better and more enduring possession. In other words, you can suffer with people and come alongside sufferers and, and actually experience suffering with some degree of joy because you know that what you have here is not all there is. We get to cling to the hope of eternity. We partner with other sufferers. And what that does is it puts into perspective that our lives really are not um, the, the worst thing in the world. 
Like, I mean, I don't know how many of you have had the, have the privilege of going into a third world country. I haven't had many opportunities, but I, I did go to Guatemala a number, a year ago or so. And that did open my eyes. I mean, you get to see people who have Jesus and basically nothing else. And, and the joy that they, that they have in him is, it's, it's somewhat shaming on us in the States. And in, the, and in the wealthier countries. Because if, you know, we lose a little bit of our 401k or something, we're like, you know, all freaking out. Like, I get it, man. I get it. That's not fun, right? Or whatever. But there are people who are literally living on dirt floors and have hardly any food and are malnourished and are, you know, I mean, th- there's realities here. So putting yourself into a position where you see and partner with other sufferers Put your suffering into perspective. That's important. That's helpful. If we're going to stick with Jesus, we need to do that. That's what the Bible says. But the third thing and the most important thing in this text is that we do that because we're clinging to the hope of eternity. Right? Verse, verse 35 says, So, in other words, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance so that after you've done God's will, you may receive what has been promised. You need endurance because life is hard. We suffer, but we don't suffer alone. We have the community of faith with us. We have the presence of Jesus through the Holy Spirit with us. We, we have the word of God with us. We don't suffer alone, so let's stop living like we're, we have to suffer alone. It's one thing we can take away from this. We need to partner with other sufferers. We need people to partner with us in our suffering. But all of this flows from the fact that God in Christ has saved us. Through, through his life, death, and resurrection, through the perfect life of Jesus, through his atoning death, through his bodily resurrection, Jesus Christ gives us this hope, this hope of eternity that allows us to have endurance in the midst of hard things. And, and fundamentally what this means is going back to Lamentations 3 is we need to draw to mind, recall to mind the character and nature of God as our faithful God with with whom there is all mercy. Even in the worst things of our lives, it's, it's the mercy of God that meets us every morning. I hope this helps you. I mean, I really do. It's helped me this week. I hope, I really do hope that this, that this passage helps you to see that God is near to those who suffer. And if you're suffering, Jesus is drawn close to you. He may feel like an enemy. He may feel distant, but he's not. You need to draw to mind who he is, his character, his nature. The very heart of Jesus is one that draws us in and carries our load. Come to me, Jesus says. All of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, he says. That's his heart for us. He wants us to come to him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we are so grateful.
that your mercies are new every morning, that your faithfulness is great. And Lord, in this room, with this many people, I don't know what everyone's going through. You do. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would meet us right here, right now, in the middle of where we're at, and that you would draw us near to Jesus. Father, we love you. We're grateful for you. We pray that you would be honored, glorified, lifted high in our worship, in our praise, in our remembrance of your table, at your table. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.